Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we are going over the Come Follow Me lesson for... October 26th through November 1st, 2020. This is covering Mormon chapters 1 through 6. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hey, Scriptures! Oh, it's so nice to have them here. Now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 37 minutes, 8 seconds. And what would that be daily? 5 minutes, and 18 seconds. Sweet. Now, we've got time codes here as we're going through Mormon 1 through 6. And just a reminder, if you're looking for some new ways to study the scriptures, check out the Scriptures Plus reading plans. Those are great. It's a free app. And so now let's get to the Book of Mormon. Not to be confused with what we've been studying all year, this is specifically Mormon's book. And one of the notes that the Institute Manual reminds us of is a quote from the Prophet Joseph Smith. This comes from History of the Church, Volume 5, where he explains that the word Mormon means literally more good. And so a very special name for a very special man, as we are going to describe. Let's start in chapter 1, verse 1. And now I, Mormon, make a record of the things which I have both seen and heard, and call it the Book of Mormon. Well, now it's interesting to note that when he calls it the Book of Mormon, he's talking about the little Book of Mormon. So we've got the big Book of Mormon, which we think about is the thing we've been studying all year. But he's just writing the story of his day. And of course, he's named Mormon, so it's called the Book of Mormon. Right. When we look at the record, we talked about this in a couple of lessons ago. Mormon himself refers to the entire book that we refer to as the Book of Mormon as the Book of Nephi or the writings of Nephi. That's his abridgment where his own story, his own plates, this is the Book of Mormon. And that's what we're talking about today. Going on. And about the time that Amaron hid up the records unto the Lord, he came unto me I being about ten years of age, and I began to be learned somewhat after the manner of the learning of my people. And Amaron said unto me, I perceive that thou art a sober child, and art quick to observe. Therefore, when ye are about twenty and four years old, I would that ye should remember the things that ye have observed concerning this people. And when ye are of that age, go to the land Antum, unto a hill which shall be called Shim. And there have I deposited unto the Lord all the sacred engravings concerning this people. And behold, ye shall take the plates of Nephi unto yourself, and the remainder shall ye leave in the place where they are, and ye shall engrave on the plates of Nephi all the things that ye have observed concerning this people. And I, Mormon, being a descendant of Nephi, and my father's name was Mormon, I remembered the things which Amaron had commanded me. Now, a few things to talk about in that. That's an amazing story, first of all. But one of the things that's interesting, look at verse 3. There's a couple of things that would suggest that Amaron is using the gift of prophecy to make some prophetic statements. Number one, remember that Mormon is 10, and Amaron wants him to remember something to do 
14 years later, when he's about 24 years old. I don't remember much of what happened 14 (laughs) years ago. I can't imagine, you know, the kind of person it would take to remember that instruction so far in advance. But also, one of the things that's curious to me is in verse 3, when he instructs him to go to the land Antum unto a hill which shall be called Shim. That would imply that it's not currently called Shim and that it would be called Shim later. Yeah, let's say you're reading along and you see that. Now, maybe that's just the way it's worded, you know, talking about something in the future. But now if you decide that you want to study that, do a word search or a phrase search. I always encourage this in your personal study. Take that phrase, shall be called, and put quotes around it and then run a search for it in your scriptures. How is it used throughout the Book of Mormon? I think you'll find that it's always used about prophesying about something that's going to come in the future. So that's interesting. Yeah, that is really interesting. There seems to have been a vision on the part of Amaron to know when Mormon needed to make his abridgment and also what the place would be called later. That's really neat to me. But most importantly... So what does Mormon do in verse 5 that we have been talking about all year? He remembered Mm -hmm, the things mm -hmm. which Amaron commanded me. Great job, Mormon. All of us need to do that. All of us need to remember. Yeah, that's great. So Mormon's 11 now in our story. If we go into verses 6 through 12, he's 11, and his father brought him southward to Zarahemla which is interesting because that's where troubles are brewing. So there is some curiosity about what is Mormon's social caste, and is it possible that he is part of a military caste wherein he's being brought to a place where he'll be prepared to take on his role? I think it's interesting to point out that he traveled southward to Zarahemla. This Mm -hmm. would imply that he grew up in lands further north. Yeah, and here's what I'm not sure about, but I'm curious. What do we know about who is living in the land northward? Last time we were looking at migrations into the land northward, one of the things we saw was that the people of Ammon, the descendants of those converted Lamanites, had all gone up there. Is that maybe one of the last bastions of true Christianity there in the land northward, where everything has kind of gone to apostasy as we get into the land southward? It's, it's an interesting possible. idea. I mean, we certainly know that they were so rock solid in the faith. Yeah. It makes sense. So anyways, the land was covered with buildings and people like the sands of the sea, it says in verse seven. So now war breaks out again. Why would you bring your 11 year old to a place where you're on the cusp of war <laughs> breaking out? But here you go. They got to learn how to fight somehow. I guess you do. Come on down to the war. So Lamanites in the borders of Zarahemla by the Sidon River, which is interesting. I'm kind of curious. He gives a geographical location there, but I'm not sure exactly the significance of it. Now, he goes on in these verses to talk about what defines Nephites and Lamanites. And this has been done a few times, both in the Small Plates record and in Mormon's record, indicating that there are multiple tribes. Remember, there were no ites for a long time. But now... People have broken back into these tribal groups. But collectively, he calls this group of tribes Nephites, this group of tribes 
Lamanites. The Nephites gathered together a force of over 30,000 men, and they're able to beat the Lamanites in this series of battles that they have, and there's a peace for four years. This, by the way, is the beginning of almost nonstop violence and warfare. This is what Mormon grows up with, which is why I wonder when Amaron sees him, if he sees something very unique in Mormon. He takes things seriously in a world where people don't take spiritual things seriously anymore. He certainly had to have stood out somehow. So going on with that in verse 13, but wickedness did prevail upon the face of the whole land insomuch that the Lord did take away his beloved disciples and the work of miracles and of healing did cease because of the iniquity of the people. Now, these are the three disciples that were to tarry. And why do we think that, these beloved disciples? Because how long has it been since they first, you know, were called? Well, it's probably been over 250 years, yeah. Yeah. Continuing in verse 14, And there were no gifts from the Lord, and the Holy Ghost did not come upon any because of their wickedness and unbelief. And I, being 15 years of age, and being somewhat of a sober mind, therefore I was visited of the Lord, and tasted and knew of the goodness of Jesus. And I did endeavor to preach unto this people, but my mouth was shut." And I was forbidden that I should preach unto them. For behold, they had willfully rebelled against their God. And the beloved disciples were taken away out of the land because of their iniquity. But I did remain among them. But I was forbidden to preach unto them because of the hardness of their hearts. And because of the hardness of their hearts, the land was cursed for their sake. Now, I want to point out something. If you've gotten to the point where... The Lord has instructed missionaries or prophets not to teach to you. You're in trouble because that means that the only way that you're going to be reclaimed is by going through harsh experience. Basically, the Lord has said, you've had your chance. Now you're going to have to learn some hard lessons. And if you don't learn them, well, that's to your own destruction. That is not a good place for these people to be. And can you imagine? I mean, we have so many missionaries in the world right now. Can you imagine if we get to a point where the leaders of the church tell them, "Um, yeah, you can't preach there anymore. Come home. Yeah. That's frightening. Yes. You know, what's interesting, though, is less likely to be a place where they would be preaching to non-members and more likely that these are the members of the church. Absolutely. That God would say, you're absolutely right. No more service to those members of the church. They have willfully rebelled against God. Well, and that's the indication there that these are members of the church that we're talking about. They know better. They are willfully rebelling against their God. Yeah. Can you imagine, for example, and I know this is kind of a weird example, but I just thought maybe it would help put it in perspective. Let's say the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles and the members of the Seventy and all that, the Lord said, look, it's time to leave Utah. You know, right. <laughs> no more preaching in Utah anymore. Right. I don't mean to pick on anybody. It's just that that's right. essentially what's happening here is that these were God's people and they have willfully mm-hmm. rebelled against him. And so that even someone who is a young person, I mean, Mormon says here he's 15, but he had tasted and knew the goodness of Jesus and he was ready to share that with anybody that he could to help them. 
Yep. And he was specifically instructed not to. So from the Institute Manual, there is another quote that I found going along with this whole theme of willfully rebelling. This is from Elder Dean L. Larson of the 70. This is a collection of articles called Alma, the Testimony of the Word. This was put together by Monty S. Nyman and Charles D. Tate, Jr. It's an article called Lightning the Scriptures Unto Us. He says, quote, Remember Mormon's description of those who turned away from the true path in his day. They did not sin in ignorance. They willfully rebelled against God. It did not occur as a universal movement. It began as individual members of the church knowingly began to make compromises with the Lord's standard. They sought justification for their diversions in the knowledge that others were compromising as well. Those who willfully sin soon seek to establish a standard of their own with which they can feel more comfortable and which justifies their misconduct. They also seek the association of those who are willing to drift with them along this path of self-delusion. As the number of drifting individuals increases, their influence becomes more powerful. It might be described as the great and spacious building syndrome. The drifting is the more dangerous when its adherents continue to overtly identify with and participate with the group that conforms to the Lord's way. Values and standards that were once clear become clouded and uncertain. The norm of behavior begins to reflect this, be clouding of true principles. Conduct that would once have caused revulsion and alarm now becomes somewhat commonplace, end quote. Hmm. You know, that's something that is really prevalent today, and it's one of the things that I've never been able to fully understand. There are many who would continue to modify the Lord's standards and make changes to the restored gospel and yet still attempt to claim membership of the church. And I don't understand that. I'm fine if you want to go and set up your own faith, but why would you change this one? We have the revelation. We've received instruction. I would warn those who would consider this behavior, contemplate the pride of your statement to think that you could improve upon instruction received by the Lord. Well, it's interesting how we change our lens on which we look at things. The most important thing we do first is align our will with God's and then go from there. Yep. Then it's about him and not about you. Right. And this is important as we look on with what the people are doing. In verses 18 and 19, like 19 says, the power of the evil one was wrought upon all the face of the land, which was a fulfillment of the words way back when with people like Abinadi and slightly more recently with Samuel the Lamanite. And it gives a list of those kinds of things. Gadianton and robbers infesting the land, treasures becoming slippery, which is something Samuel the Lamanite talked about and Mormon will talk about a little bit more in the next chapter but sorceries, witchcrafts, magics. But that idea of the wickedness of the evil one being on the face of the land, it's possible that Abinadi was talking about that in the last days in Mosiah 16.5. But we'll take a look more at that going forward. 
this is the mindset that people are in, and then they want to change what God is saying, then they want to go their own way, this is not a good place to make decisions from. No, and this is one of the few times in the Book of Mormon that specifically mentions things like sorceries and witchcrafts. There's a quote that I found in the Institute Manual from President James E. Faust. This is from General Conference, October 1987, where he says, quote, It is not good practice to become intrigued by Satan and his mysteries. No good can come from getting close to evil. Like playing with fire, it is too easy to get burned. The only safe course is to keep well distanced from him and any of his wicked activities or nefarious practices. The mischief of devil worship, sorcery, casting spells, witchcraft, voodooism, black magic, and all other forms of demonism should be avoided like the plague, end quote. Yeah, well, as we'll see, the fruits that come from that. Indeed. Let's move on to chapter 2. Welcome to chapter 2. Hi. While we start here in verses 1 through 9, Mormon explains that he's still young. He's 16, but he's large in stature. And he gets the honor of being appointed. Well, I say honor. It would be more honorable if we had righteous soldiers. But he's appointed to be the leader of the Nephite forces. This is the 326th year. And he gets to test his mettle in the very next year when the Lamanites come with such power that the Nephite army is frightened. They choose to flee instead of to fight. And they move further northward. The Nephites try to gather their forces and fortify Angola. That doesn't work. Then David, that doesn't work. The Lamanites keep driving them out. They get to Joshua. And even though the land is filled with robbers and Lamanites, Mormon finally sees some success defending against the Lamanite king who's named King Aaron. He's got 44,000 troops. Mormon's got 42,000 But, of course, he also has got the advantage of fortifications and so forth. So this ends the 331st year. So that battle's been going on for four years. And we get a glimpse in the next few verses that there might be some hope yet for the Nephites. In verse 10, And it came to pass that the Nephites began to repent of their iniquity and began to cry, even as had been prophesied by Samuel the prophet, For behold, no man could keep that which was his own. For the thieves and the robbers and the murderers and the magic art and the witchcraft which was in the land. Now this prophecy is recorded in Helaman chapter 13 from Samuel. Going on to verse 12. And it came to pass that when I, Mormon, saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. But behold, this my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned. Now, just a quick aside here. One of the things that I think about when I read sorrowing of the damned now is in October 2018 General Conference, Elder Uchtdorf introduced us to a new word in the German language called Weltschmerz, literally world pain. The notion of being upset because the world isn't the way that you think it should be. And 
That is the sorrowing of the damned. That's a good Those word. Germans have a word for everything. <laughs> All right, going on. Because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. Isn't that a little weird? Yeah. You know, they can't decide what they want. They want to die at one point, but they're willing to do everything that they can to stay alive. It's really kind of the confusion that comes with embracing wickedness. They just cursed God. Why would you want to die taking the chance that you're going to be, you know, standing in front of him? Right. And it came to pass that my sorrow did return unto me again. And I saw that the day of grace was passed with them, both temporally and spiritually. For I saw thousands of them hewn down in open rebellion against their God and heaped up as dung upon the face of the land. And thus 340 and four years had passed away. That is not a pretty picture. No, that is not. Now, in the Institute Manual, there's a quote from Elder Neal A. Maxwell talking about the whole concept of godly sorrow versus sorrow of the damned. This is from October 1991 General Conference. He says, quote, After recognition, real remorse floods the soul. This is a godly sorrow, not merely the sorrow of the world, nor the sorrowing of the damned. When we can no longer take happiness in sin, false remorse instead is like fondling our failings. In ritual regret, we mourn our mistakes, but without mending them, end quote. Remembering that 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 is a choice. We get to choose. We can choose. No matter what we've done or how far we've fallen, we can choose to change. So in verses 16 and 17, we're in the 345th year, and the Nephites are no longer safe. The Nephites flee from the Lamanites toward the land of Jashan, which is near where Amaron hid the plates. You remember what that was going to be Uh called? The hill Shim. That was back in last chapter, verse 3. So now Mormon finds himself just kind of by circumstances in exactly the place he needs to be and he takes the plates and begins the most exciting literary project maybe in the history of the world he begins to abridge this record well let me insert one other thought to think about i didn't notice this until just this time around but mormon would have been born in 310 or the 310th year And one of the ways that we can determine that is if you look at chapter 2, it says that in the 326th year, he was appointed to be the leader of the Nephite forces, and that's also when he was 16 years old. So he was born in the 310th year. Well, we're now in the 345th year, which means that Mormon is 35. And what's interesting to me about that is if you remember back in chapter 1, verse 3, Amaron commands Mormon when he is 10 years old that when he is 24 to go and get the plates. Well, he's 35, so he's late. (laughs) So that brings up an interesting thing to ponder. Is it more important that you're on time or that you get it done? Or that you remembered and executed the command. Yeah. Yeah. 
So there's an interesting parallel we might draw with Joseph F. Smith. This is the son of Hiram Smith, nephew to Joseph Smith. When he was nine, he drove an ox team with his mother across the plains to the Salt Lake Valley. And at age 15, Joseph F. Smith was called on a mission to Hawaii. So you might say he was something of a sober child. Yeah, I think there's an interesting parallel between him and Mormon as young people of great capacity. While Joseph F. Smith was on a mission in Hawaii, he shares a dream that he had. He shares it in the book Gospel Doctrine. He describes it this way. While I was in this condition, and he's talking about the condition of feeling oppressed and poor and dirty and put upon, he said, I dreamed one night that I was on a journey and I was impressed that I ought to hurry, hurry with all my might for fear I might be too late. I rushed on my way as fast as I possibly could. And I was only conscious of having just a handkerchief with a small bundle wrapped in it. I did not realize what it was when I was hurrying as fast as I could, but I finally came to a wonderful mansion. I thought I knew that was my destination. As I passed toward it, as fast as I could, I saw a notice which read B-A-T-H, bath. I turned aside quickly and went in to the bath and washed myself clean. I opened up this little bundle that I had, and there was some white, clean clothing, a thing I had not seen for a long time. Because the people I was with did not think very much of making things exceedingly clean, but my clothing was clean and I put it on. Then I rushed to what appeared to be a great opening or door. I knocked and the door opened and the man who stood there was the prophet Joseph Smith. He looked at me a little reprovingly and the first words he said, Joseph, you're late. Yet I took confidence and replied, yes, but I am clean. I am clean. He clasped my hand and drew me in. So I was yeah. thinking about that when it comes to Mormon. The account that we have shows that he began his work. He took these plates 10 years later that he was told to. And yet, what experiences did he have during that time? How was he prepared to take on this incredible work? Was it more important that he was there on time or that when he was there, he was clean, he was ready to take on that work. Well, and you're welcome to argue also that Amaron certainly said, when you are about 20 and four years of age, and certainly <laughs> 35 is about 24 to a 10-year-old. Well, that might be, yeah, Mormon might have been thinking, oh, okay, right, when I'm an old guy, got it. Yeah. So Mormon does, he takes the plates and begins this amazing project to abridge this great work. Let's take a look in verse 18. And upon the plates of Nephi, I did make a full account of all the wickedness and abominations. But upon these plates, I did forbear to make a full account of their wickedness and abominations. For behold, a continual scene of wickedness and abomination has been before mine eyes ever since I have been sufficient to behold the ways of man. And woe is me because of their wickedness. For my heart has been filled with sorrow because of their wickedness all my days. Nevertheless, I know that I shall be lifted up at the last day. Again, maybe there's that idea that I am clean. 
He's surrounded by filth, but he knows in whom he has trusted. Right. So then to summarize the rest of the chapter, the Nephites are hunted and driven north to the land of Shem. They fortify the city, and in the 346th year, the Lamanites come. Mormon does his best to rally the people. He encourages them to fight for their wives and their children and their houses and their homes. And it works. Mormon's troops of 30,000 Nephites repel an army of 50,000 Lamanites. So those fortifications obviously really helped. The Nephites chase the Lamanites, but they are left to their own strength. So this is not good. They don't have the protection of the Lord. In the 350th year, a treaty is made with the Lamanites and the Gadianton robbers. I love how they're a separate party to all of this. They're not really part of the Lamanites. They're not part of the Nephites. They're kind of their own thing. But they make a treaty with both of them. And the Nephites get the land northward from the narrow passage. And everything south of the passage is now the Lamanites. Wow. So can you see how they continue to push those Nephites north? They keep pushing them north. And this is as far north as they've ever been. I mean, this is the border of the area that they referred to as the land desolation, where the Jaredites were. Yeah, this is the worst that's ever happened. This bountiful, the narrow pass has never been breached in the history of the Nephite people. And all they can do is compromise. From the Institute Manual, I found a quote that discusses a little bit more of being left to ourselves. This is from Elder Ray H. Wood from the 70. This is General Conference, April 1999. He says, quote, When a person violates any of God's commandments, if there is no repentance, the Lord withdraws his protective and sustaining influence. When we lose power with God, we know of a certainty that the problem lies within us and not within God. I, the Lord, am bound when ye do what I say, but when ye do not what I say, ye have no promise. Our misdeeds bring despair. They sadden and extinguish the perfect brightness of hope offered by Christ. Without God's help, we are left to ourselves. Oh, we don't want to be left to ourselves. No, 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 no. We are not nearly as good as we think we are. Yeah. All right, let's take this into chapter 3. We've got 10 years of peace right at the onset. And then in verse 2, came to pass that the Lord did say unto me, cry unto this people. Well, he's got to be excited at that, right? Wow, yeah, he's able to open his mouth now. Finally. All right, so the Lord tells him to cry unto this people, Repent ye, and come unto me, and be ye baptized, and build up again my church, and ye shall be spared. And I did cry unto this people, but it was in vain. And they did not realize that it was the Lord that had spared them, and had granted unto them a chance for repentance. And behold, they did harden their hearts against the Lord their God. How important is it for us to recognize when the Lord blesses us? In the Come, Follow Me manual, there's a quote from President Henry B. Eyring. This is from October 2007 General Conference, where he urges us to, quote, find ways to recognize and remember God's kindness. Pray and ponder, asking the questions, did God send a message that was just for me? Did I see his hand in my life? or the lives of my children, I testify that he loves us and blesses us, 
more than most of us have yet recognized, end quote. That's from a talk called, Oh, Remember, Remember. Sounds like an important theme, I would think. Yeah, and, you know, they had 10 years when they could have come around, you know? Yeah. And so here we are in the 360th year, and that's the end of that window. The Lamanites send to Mormon a letter <laughs> warning him that they're coming to battle. So Mormon prepares his troops in desolation near the narrow pass. The next year, the Lamanites attacked. They're repulsed. They come back the next year, and they're repulsed again. And what happens? Do they praise God? No. The Nephites boast in their own strength and begin to swear before the heavens that they would avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren who had been slain. And at this point, Mormon says, I am out. I refuse yep. to lead such a wicked people. From the Institute Manual, I found a quote from Elder Neil A. Maxwell talking about this very thing where boasting in your own power. This is from General Conference, April 2002. He says, quote, Before enjoying the harvests of righteous efforts, let us therefore first acknowledge God's hand. Otherwise, the rationalizations appear, and they include, My power and the might of mine hand hath gotten me this wealth. Or we vaunt ourselves, as ancient Israel would have done, except for Gideon's deliberately small army, by boasting that mine own hand hath saved me. Touting our own hand makes it doubly hard to confess God's hand in all things. End quote. Yeah, we see that play out here. Let's take a look at verse 12. Behold, I had led them, notwithstanding their wickedness, I had led them many times to battle and had loved them according to the love of God which was in me. With all my heart and my soul had been poured out in prayer unto my God all the day long for them. Nevertheless, it was without faith because of the hardness of their hearts. And thrice have I delivered them out of the hands of their enemies, and they have repented not of their sins. And when they had sworn by all that had been forbidden them by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that they would go up unto their enemies to battle and avenge themselves of the blood of their brethren, behold, the voice of the Lord came unto me, saying, Vengeance is mine, and I will repay. And because this people repented not after I had delivered them, behold, they shall be cut off from the face of the earth." And it came to pass that I utterly refused to go up against mine enemies. Notice here, too, what we're saying is they're taking the offensive. And that's something right. that if we looked back into Third Nephi with Laconius and Gidgadoni, that was forbidden. We'll defend what we have, but we will not take the offensive. So, 16, and it came to pass that I utterly refused to go up against mine enemies. And I did even as the Lord had commanded me. And I did stand as an idle witness to manifest unto the world the things which I saw and heard according to the manifestations of the Spirit, which had testified of things to come. What an awful role to play. You yeah. know what your people are doing is wrong, and it's going to end in destruction, and all you can do is sit and watch it happen and record that it happened. We're going to see another important figure that has an identical role. His name was Ether. Well, that's a couple of lessons down the way. 
but that's got to be really hard. Yeah. All right, let's take a look at some of the final verses in chapter 3. Mormon here is writing to the Gentiles, the house of Israel, the ends of the earth, and maybe very specifically to the remnant of this people, starting in verse 20. And these things doth the Spirit manifest unto me. Therefore, I write unto you all, and for this cause I write unto you, that ye may know that ye must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Yea, every soul who belongs to the whole human family of Adam, and ye must stand to be judged of your works, whether they be good or evil. And also, that ye may believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, which ye shall have among you, and also that the Jews, the covenant people of the Lord, shall have other witness besides him whom they saw and heard, that Jesus, whom they slew, was the very Christ and the very God. And I would that I could persuade all ye ends of the earth to repent and prepare to stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, one of the things that seems really interesting to me about this, we don't really have a sense of when Mormon is writing or when he's taking breaks or so on and so forth, but it almost seems like he is concerned that this might be the last thing he has to say. And he's kind of summarizing things up at this point. And, you know, we learned that he's still got a few more chapters to talk, but yeah, this is kind of an ominous ending to the chapter. Mm-hmm. There is a really powerful quote that I found in the Institute Manual from President Gordon B. Hinckley. This was April 1994 General Conference in which he testifies of the Book of Mormon's being a testament of Jesus Christ. He says, quote, This scripture of the new world is before us as an added witness of the divinity and reality of the Lord Jesus Christ, of the encompassing beneficence of his atonement and of his coming forth from the darkness of the grave. Within these covers is found much of the sure word of prophecy concerning him, who should be born of a virgin, the Son of the Almighty God. There is a foretelling of his work among men as a living mortal. There is a declaration of his death, of the Lamb without blemish, who was to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And there is an account that is moving and inspiring and true of the visit of the resurrected Christ among living men and women in the Western continent. The testimony is here to handle. It is here to be read. It is here to be pondered. It is here to be prayed over with a promise that he who prays shall know by the power of the Holy Ghost of its truth and validity. End quote. I love that. Wonderful. So let's go on to chapter four. Chapter four. These first nine verses, we're going to start out in the 363rd year. The Nephites are in desolation at the border between the Nephites and Lamanites, and they attack the Lamanites. Well, how's that going to work out? The Lamanites drive Mm. the Nephites back to desolation with a fresh army behind them to capture desolation, slaying many. The Nephites flee to Teancum. Well, wait a minute. How could this happen? (laughs) Mormon clarifies it for us. In verse 4, it was because 
the armies of the Nephites went up unto the Lamanites, that they began to be smitten. For were it not for that, the Lamanites could have had no power over them. That very thing they felt that they had a right to, which was to avenge and to attack their enemies, not doing that was the very thing giving them protection. But they wanted to do things their way. So that move right there, there's a lot of places in this chapter where we could list it as the beginning of the end, but that certainly is one of them. So the following year, the Lamanites attack Teancum. Now the Nephites successfully defend it for now, and this success gives them courage to try to retake desolation. Mormon reflects, though, that in the course of these wars, thousands of Lamanites and Nephites are killed. In verse 10, And it came to pass that the three hundred and sixty and sixth year had passed away, and the Lamanites came again upon the Nephites to battle. And yet the Nephites repented not of the evil they had done, but persisted in their wickedness continually. And it is impossible for the tongue to describe or for man to write a perfect description of the horrible scene of the blood and carnage which was among the people, both of the Nephites and of the Lamanites. And every heart was hardened, so that they delighted in the shedding of blood continually. And there never had been so great wickedness among all the children of Lehi, nor even among all the house of Israel, according to the words of the Lord, as was among this people. Now that's saying something. It is. We've had some pretty dark times of wickedness. And what's interesting is that Mormon, he already told us he's not going to tell us all their abominations. But Moroni will publish for us some of the letters that his father sent to him during this time, and we will learn some of the horrific things We will things learn that of some happening. of them, yeah. yeah. Verses 13 through 22, the Lamanites retake desolation because they have a bigger army. The Nephites don't have the strength, and the Lord is not protecting them. So as we pointed out before, they are left to their own strength. The Lamanites take Teancum, and then they sacrifice the Nephite prisoners, specifically women and children, to their idol gods. The 367th year, the Nephites are furious at this, that their women and children have been sacrificed, and they drive the Lamanites out of their lands. And for a time, they have, I don't know, some kind of non Relative peace. I hate to call yeah. it peace, because <laughs> I don't know that the wicked can have peace, but... Yeah, they are protected for another eight years. And then the Lamanites come back literally with an army that could not be numbered. This is verses 16 and 17. And from here on out, the Nephites are swept off by them, even as the dew before the sun. What a description in verse 18. The Lamanites retake desolation. The Nephites flee to Boaz. The Lamanites take Boaz. It took two attempts to do it. They came back the following year, took it. And again, they sacrificed more women and children to the idols. All of this stuff that's going on, we talked about this before, but who does wickedness affect? Well, of course it affects us, but look how it affects society. The most vulnerable in society are those who are going to be hit hard by this. Who are going to suffer. Yeah. Nephite armies, they flee from city to city and encourage the citizens to flee with them, I guess in the hopes of building up a force that could stop the Lamanites. In verse 23, Mormon says, And now I, Mormon, seeing that the Lamanites were about to overthrow the land, therefore I did go to the hill Shim, 
and did take up all the records which Amaron had hit up unto the Lord. And that's wow. the end of chapter 4. And from what we understand about those records, that was probably no small task. Yeah, this would have taken time. But it's interesting that as the Lamanites are controlling that land, he wants to keep them safe by putting them in a new location. Right, further north, most likely. Yeah. Now, Mormon, in chapter 5, welcome to chapter 5, by the way. Hi. Decides again to lead the Nephite forces. Verse 1, And it came to pass that I did go forth among the Nephites and did repent of the oath which I had made that I would no more assist them. And they gave me command again of their armies. And they looked upon me as though I could deliver them from their (laughs) afflictions. But behold, I was without hope, for I knew the judgments of the Lord which should come upon them. For they repented not of their iniquities, but they did struggle for their lives without calling upon that being who created them. Now for perspective, Mormon is 65 right now. That tells you something about Mormon's character to be able to, after at least 10 years of watching these people do terrible things and continue to do, to take up command of the forces again, that's remarkable to me. Yeah. And what was Mormon doing during all this time? Well, it's very possible that he's continued to work. I mean, at some point through all of this, he's been working on the record we call the Book of Mormon. And so... I'm sure he's been busy doing the work the Lord wants him to do. But what an amazing perspective as he's been going through and looking at things like the days of Nephi and the amazing prophecies and blessings of the Lord and eventually the Lord's coming, all the while living in a world where people are cursing God and it's filled with the worst wickedness. And when he says there's never been such wickedness, well, he's got a pretty good perspective. He's been going through all the historical records to put together the Book of Mormon. Right. Including the plates of brass, by the way. So even his reference of the children of Israel yeah. is probably accurate. Yeah. Which, again, is pretty impressive if you've read through the Old Testament, and we will. That's a, an impressive statement. Yep. So the Nephite armies flee to Jordan, and the Lamanites attack but are repulsed. But then the Lamanites destroy any Nephite cities where the inhabitants thereof are not gathered in. Now, isn't that an interesting image? Yeah. Where they're not unified in one body, they will just go to any Nephite city and just wipe them out. Well, and, you know, it said when they were retreating, they were enticing the people to come with them. Those that said, no, no, I'm going to stay here. This may be referencing all of those. Right. And certainly in later verses, like in verse 7, we find in the 380th year, So at this point, Mormon is 70 years old, but is still leading the forces. The Lamanites attack again and drive the Nephite forces and, quote, those whose flight was swifter than the Lamanites did escape and those whose flight did not exceed the Lamanites were swept down and destroyed. What a horrible thing. Yeah. Wow. In verses 11 through 16, this is Mormon's message to the Lamanites, and the Gentiles. Mormon's prophecy that his writings would be hidden and then brought forth to the Lamanites and Gentiles and that they would be read by them. In verse 11, at the end of the verse, he says, they will sorrow that this people had not repented, that they might have been clasped in the arms of Jesus. That phrase is so tender. You can imagine what that 
means, what it feels like, that Mormon has felt that, that the people who are going to read this book are going to feel that and lament that these people had not taken advantage of that. Let's look in verses 14 and 15 and look for what the Lord intended Mormon's writings to do for the people in the last days. And behold, they shall go unto the unbelieving of the Jews. And for this intent shall they go, that they may be persuaded that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that the Father may bring about through his most beloved his great and eternal purposes in restoring the Jews or all the house of Israel to the land of their inheritance, which the Lord their God hath given them unto the fulfilling of his covenant. And also that the seed of this people may more fully believe his gospel. And that's a great one. You know, the world was filled with Christians by the time Joseph Smith came along. But this is the intent that the people may more fully believe his gospel, which shall go forth unto them from the Gentiles. For this people shall be scattered and shall become a dark and a filthy and a loathsome people. That's an expression that's been used multiple times to describe Nephites or Lamanites in apostasy. Beyond the description of that which ever hath been amongst us, yea, even that which hath been among the Lamanites, and this because of their unbelief and idolatry. So that's reference to Nephite idolatry as well. In verse 16, if we look at the results of the Nephites' refusal to repent, 16 gives us a great phrase, the Spirit of the Lord hath already ceased to strive with their fathers. There was an interesting perspective that President Harold B. Lee gives us from the Institute Manual, and this is in April 1956 General Conference. He says, quote, Mormon described some people, his people, from whom the Spirit of the Lord had departed. And when I read that, it seemed clear to me that what he was talking about was not merely the inability to have the companionship or the gift of the Holy Ghost, but he was talking of that light of truth to which everyone born into the world is entitled and will never cease to strive with the individual unless he loses it through his own sinning, end quote. So it's possible that they have just betrayed the light of Christ in them to the point where they are, as Laman and Lemuel of old, past feeling. Past feeling. And look at this lament in verse 17. They were once a delightsome people. And they had Christ for their shepherd. Yea, they were led even by God the Father. But now, behold, they are led about by Satan. Even as chaff is driven before the wind, or as a vessel is tossed about upon the waves, without sail or anchor, or without anything wherewith to steer her. And even as she is, so are they. And behold, the Lord hath reserved their blessings, which they might have received in the land for the Gentiles who shall possess the land. Now, I say this cautiously, but woohoo! Yeah, <laughs> you know? I was going to say, that's kind of good news for us. It is. It's bad for man, them, and I'm terrible sorry. terrible for them. But thank you. So, verses 22 through 24... At the end of the chapter here, as you read this, look for what Mormon exhorts the people in the latter days to do 
That's us, by the way. Like repentance and humbling ourselves. And that might be a good discussion to have in those last verses about what God expects of us in our day. So while we have been teasing the beginning of the end, now we have the end. Now it's really... Chapter 6. Yeah. So here we are at chapter 6. The first five verses, Mormon has written a letter to the Lamanites, and they are allowing the Nephites to gather to the land of Cumorah for a battle. And Mormon knows. He knows this is going to be the last battle. This is in the 385th year. So John Mormon is how old? He is 75. Yeah. And this is also very significant, and I'll explain why after I want to read verse 6, because this is a pinnacle moment in the Book of Mormon. And it came to pass that when he had gathered in all our people in one to the land of Cumorah, behold, I, Mormon, began to be old, and knowing it to be the last struggle of my people, and having been commanded of the Lord that I should not suffer the records which had been handed down by our fathers, which were sacred, to fall into the hands of the Lamanites, for the Lamanites would destroy them. Therefore I made this record, out of the plates of Nephi, and hid up in the hill Cumorah all the records which had been entrusted to me by the hand of the Lord, save it were these few plates which I gave unto my son Moroni. Now, this is important. In about 385 A.D., Jerome, or Saint Jerome as he is known, in the Old World is putting together his Latin translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament that we would recognize today as the Bible and would be the Bible for the Catholic Church for a thousand years. This is significant to me. The Lord is putting together his scriptures for his people. It's incredible. That's fantastic. However, as much as it's exciting to see the work of the Lord is happening, at the present time in our story, verse 7 tells us, it came to pass that my people, with their wives and their children, did now behold the armies of the Lamanites marching towards them. And with that awful fear of death, which fills the breasts of all the wicked, did they await to receive them. What an image. So horrible. You can, it's so horrible. You can just see your doom coming oh. upon you, and you have nothing. There's nothing. You have you no can protection, do. and you have no hope. No. For even an afterlife, no. you've already abandoned that. Yeah. So verses eight through fifteen. This is it. Mormon in the battle. He describes, like in verse ten, he falls wounded. The Lamanites leave him, which is great for us, but they kill. Everybody, all but 24. Can you imagine that? And how many is all of them? You could count them up if you want to. So that is 230,000 people. Wow. And the remaining of that is 24. That's what's left. A slaughter. It's impossible to imagine it. There's also a few that had escaped to the south countries in verse 15 and a few that deserted over unto the Lamanites. But those that are left with Mormon, that's 24. We're not going to see a slaughter like this again for at least a couple of lessons. (laughs) 
All right. So as we think about these events, what's coming up is something that's called Mormon's Lament. And we'd like to kind of summarize and focus these verses using a little bit of performance license. And we'll include some clips here from an old seminary video that I think captures it really well. If you could just imagine for the next few minutes that you're Mormon and that you've lost everything and it all could have been avoided if the people had just turned to the Savior whose arms are open for them. Think of a modern major city that has over 200,000 people and now picture everyone dead and buildings destroyed. That's what Mormon's looking at right now. And it came to pass that they came to battle against us. And every soul was filled with terror because of the greatness of their numbers. And it came to pass that my men were hewn down. Yea, they had gone through and hewn down all my people. And their flesh and bones and blood lay upon the face of the earth. And my soul was rent with anguish because of the slain of my people. And I cried, O ye fair ones, how could you have departed from the ways of the Lord? O ye fair ones, how could ye have rejected that Jesus who stood with open arms to receive you? Behold, if ye had not done this, ye would not have fallen. But behold, ye are fallen, and I mourn your loss. O ye fair sons and daughters, ye fathers and mothers, ye husbands and wives, ye fair ones, how is it that ye could have fallen? But behold, ye are gone, and my sorrows cannot bring your return. Oh, that ye had repented before this great destruction had come upon you. But behold, ye are gone, and the Father, yea, the Eternal Father of heaven, knoweth your state, and he doeth with you according to his justice and mercy. Mormon has continually described the power of the atonement of Jesus Christ, that we can be clasped in the arms of Jesus. That was chapter 5, verse 11. And we just read, who stands with open arms to receive us. Then Elder Nelson, in the conference 1996, October conference, talked about this idea of the atonement that the word that is used as atonement, there's a related word in Aramaic and Arabic that means a close embrace. He says, references to that embrace are evident in the Book of Mormon. One states that the Lord hath redeemed my soul. I have beheld his glory 
and I am encircled about eternally in the arms of his love. And another proffers the glorious hope of our being clasped in the arms of Jesus. And Elder Neil L. Anderson talks about this concept too in the October 2009 General Conference. He says, the scriptures speak of his arms being open, extended, stretched out, and encircling. They are described as mighty and holy, arms of mercy, arms of safety, arms of love, lengthened out all the day long. We have each felt to some extent these spiritual arms around us. We have felt his forgiveness, his love, and comfort. The Lord has said, I am he who comforteth you. The Lord's desire that we come unto him and be wrapped in his arms is often an invitation to repent. You know, it's kind of a dark way to end the chapters with what happens at the end of chapter 6. But the warning and the pleading that Mormon gives us to recognize that whatever we've done, the arms are open. Jesus Christ wants to clasp us in his arms. And we can accept that invitation. Yeah, I know that this is going to be hard for the next several lessons. We're going to be covering Ether, which is the rise and fall of the Jaredites, and Moroni, which is the end, essentially, of the Nephite civilization. This is going to be a rough read, but at the same time, take a look at the mercy. Study the mercy of the Lord and how many times he has reached out to gather his people and to give them opportunities to repent. And it's only when they refuse that opportunity that this destruction happens. And this is what Mormon really wants us to see, and Moroni, and all that have written in this story. So keep reading your scriptures, and we'll look forward to talking to you more about this next lesson. We will see you then. This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But we're really big fans. 